Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Oncology Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Quill. Today's episode features answers from a panel of international lung cancer experts to clinician questions about the management of MET-exon-14 mutation-positive advanced non-small cell lung cancer. This episode is part of a larger educational program titled MET Inhibition in Advanced Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer, Molecular Targeting for MET-exon-14 and Emerging Options. During this podcast, Dr. Luis paz Erez from University Hospital Doce de Octubre in Madrid, Dr. Ross Kamage from the University of Colorado Cancer Center in Aurora, and Dr. Karen Reckamp from Cedar sinai in Los Angeles will answer questions asked by the audience during a live webinar covering a variety of important topics such as incorporating MET-exon-14 testing into standard of care, a comparison of RNA-based and DNA-based next-generation sequencing platforms, regulatory and clinical differences between new selective MET inhibitors, and counseling patients on management of peripheral edema, a class effect with selective MET inhibitor therapy. For more information on the experts, along with a link to the complete program, including a downloadable slide set, please visit the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started and hear what the experts have to say. Welcome to this activity on MET inhibition in advanced non-small cell lung cancer. And uh, I'm really uh, happy that uh, we are with us today. And we have an excellent faculty here. For you, what is the most sensitive uh, uh, testing assay uh, in this setting? Ross or um, Karen, do you like to make any comment? Sure. Um, so, yeah, I think the what we're starting to have to realize is that next-generation sequencing is not a uniform uh, test. It's a platform with lots of variability within it. Which primers do you use? How many genes do you have? Which genes do you have? And what is your source material? The reason the RNA is more sensitive is you don't need to know what the mutation is. You're looking for the end result, which is that that X114 is missing. And I think there's a certain iniquity with the DNA because you'll pick up some MEDX on 14s and so you'll go, my assay's great. Look, I found one last week. But you don't know that you're missing nearly 50% of the possible cases. And that's what all of the RNA uh, assays do. So you, I think as a, as a clinician, you need to be able to go to your NGS vendor and start to learn the questions you have to ask about not just, I don't care if you've got 10 genes or 50 genes or 500 genes, what are the genes what is the source material and are you picking up what I want you to pick up? And I would agree with that. So, for example, if you're getting a patient for a second consultation and uh, had had an NGIS test based on DNA and uh, is not having some tissue left, would you go for a selfie DNA testing or would you rely on the uh, uh, NGS, uh, the DNA NGS-based test that had been done on the other institution. What would you do? Karen, do you want to take that one? Yes, yeah, so I, I think that I, 
we've seen this before, even in just the era of EGFR, where um, a negative test is not definitive. And so I think you push forward, whether it means doing another biopsy, potentially a liquid biopsy, which is really valuable in these patients, um, to try and get um, a clear answer and understand if the incorrect platform was done or if it wasn't testing sufficiently for met exon 14, um, that there's a large possibility that we're, we're missing um, our patient, the potential for our patients, and now we have approved drugs. And so um, we need to make sure that um, the panels accurately um, are detecting these mutations and we need to not accept panels that don't. Yeah, I mean, I, I had an example the other day where Foundation Medicine has unfortunately, I think, tweaked the way they present data and their headline says something like, no actionable changes with an FDA-approved companion diagnostic. And if that's the only line you read, you can get misled. So, you know, in May 2020, we have had seven different FDA approvals. And if that hasn't kept up to date, you know, MET could be sitting underneath it. RET could be sitting underneath it. Met, uh, EGFR Exxon 20 or HER2 Exxon 20 could be sitting underneath that. And if you don't look down at the details, you simply writing in your notes, no actionable change, you will be doing your patients a disservice. We got a question here from, which is from Dr. Lee asking, how common are RNA-based NGS testing in the US and in other key geographic areas? I mean, if I'm taking from the European side, I would say that um, it depends on the country and it depends if it's a NHS-based NHS or a private-based uh, 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 hospital. Uh, I don't think uh, more than 34% of the patients will have access to RNA-based NGS testing. Very often, uh, when they do NGS, they only do uh, 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 DNA, and that is something that we have to solve into the future. I don't know how th things are in the U.S. So... Um... I mean, there are in-house assays. And so, for example, the Archer DX panel uh, recently was approved as the companion diagnostic for tapotinib in Japan. So there are commercial RNA-based assays which are going to be accessible. Uh, unfortunately, Foundation Medicine currently is not an RNA-based assay, which is you know one of the, the big names. I think Karis may have an RNA-based extraction for the net. Karen, do you know more? Right. I, I, Keras definitely has an RNA base, and it really depends on the platform. Um, and uh, I think we, a lot of us, rely on rely on our in-house, and um, and it's. Re I, I think that it's probably quite confusing to um, a lot of the clinicians that are out in practice who may not uh, be seeing lung cancer all the time. And so, really understanding those platforms and what you're. Um, what you're ordering when you're testing um, is incredibly important and today more than ever. Okay, thank you. One is actually uh, related to the side effects and it's asking is Dr. Peter Manulakis, for any reason, is there any reason why edema rates are lower with TKIs such as with in combination with osimertinib? in patients with EGFR mutated tumors as compared to single-agent TKI MET inhibitor, uh, treatment of MET-exon-14 skipping EGFR wild-type patients. So it's asking why edema is lower in combination with 
osimertinib as compared to single agent. Do you have any take in on that? I mean, I think the data is, um, there's limited data um, for these, for the EGFR and uh, sabalitinib. So it's, it's small numbers of patients. Um, I think it's very much a class effect that we see the peripheral edema. There may be something um, going on that uh, by giving both drugs together that you may reduce that some and it's not as noticeable. Um, but I think it's, it's, it's still likely that uh, the peripheral edema is something that we're going to see more in these patients um, as more patients are treated. I, mean, I fully agree. Likely to be also a, a reporting uh, effect on a small number of patients more than any other thing. Okay, so uh, the first question is maybe rela is related to the difference in the adverse event profile and efficacy between type 1 and type 2 inhibitors. I don't know which of you would like to take it. So Karen, you've done cabazantinib studies. You might be able to comment on this better than me. The type 2 inhibitors um, tend to be more um, dirty drugs and cover a significant larger number of uh, kinases. And so the toxicity with type 2 drugs tend to overlap with some of the VEGF um, toxicity um, and RET toxicity. And so uh, hypertension, proteinuria, you start to see with those, um, with those drugs. And um, the type 1 inhibitors tend to be more selective. And so really you start to see the peripheral edema is really the prominent uh, toxicity and some of the lab abnormalities um, that we've discussed in GI toxicities. Um, but the, the, um, the fact that this type 2 inhibitors cover multiple kinases, you get the off-target effects. And um, it depends on which kinases it is, uh, it, it is attacking more, but uh, drugs like cabazantinib have uh, significant uh, toxicity and very difficult to tolerate. Things like diarrhea, hand-foot syndrome um, also occur with, with drugs like uh, cabazantinib. Um, so quite different, and uh, the type 2 drugs tend to have more toxicities, um, but I think cabazantinib is one of the, one, the drugs with more profound toxicities. I don't know if you have any experience with some of the other type 2 inhibitors. I fully agree with you, Karen. I mean, uh, uh, cabazantinib, I mean, it's really difficult to keep the dosing. You always have to dose reduce after a while. Um, I mean, you're getting, I mean, some significant... GI, hand food, sometimes hypertension. I mean, but it's not, I mean, you have to don't reduce very often. I don't know if I, I never use any of the other type 2 inhibitors. Do you have any experience at all? I, very I limited. Yeah. I mean, I, wa I wonder if, you know, they went quiet because, um, you know, the type 1 inhibitors were clearly going to be the best tolerated things to go yeah. forward to, but they, you know, some of them may need to come back and be, you know, re explored. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, anyway, I mean, it would be really important to optimize the use because one may predict that uh, uh, at the time of resistance, some of these type 2 inhibitors are going to be somehow the, 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 the way to go, right? Well, you can also use the antibodies. That's the, the, I mean, it's a small data set, but that's Symphogen 015. Yeah. You know, remember that this, is, this isn't activated by mutations that turn on the kinase domain. They activate by increasing expression of the protein that then sort of auto-aggregates and auto-stimulates. So it's the perfect thing for depopulating with an antibody. 
So there is another question based on, uh, I mean, uh, concerning the metamplified tumors. And the question is, uh, given the results with uh, cavmatinib, do you think uh, it's enough to really treat our patients with uh, cavmatinib in metamplified tumors? Uh, yeah, no I, no, I can certainly comment on that. So I think the, the answer is yes. I, I think it's uh, it's more complex because meta-application is this continuous variable that can also be measured in different ways. And, uh, you know, whilst the, the data suggests that you really need to be at the high end of meta-amplification and ideally with true amplification, so not high polysomy, my worry is, um, although the catbatinib, I think, used an appropriate, at least for NGS, high cut point of gene copy number of greater than or equal to 10, if you're next generation sequencing report just says met amplified and doesn't tell you that level of detail, people will be being inappropriately treated. So you have this patient, which is, let's say, uh, more than, uh, let's say, more than 15 uh, copy number gains, uh, but the patient is pdl one positive, let's say, 55% of the cells. What would you do? Would you go for Pembrolol? Would you go for Carbantinib? Probably I'd, I'd probably I'd go for catmatinib, I have to be honest. I think the other thing I'd bear in mind is whether the patient was a smoker or a never smoker. If they were a never smoker, I'd absolutely do that yeah. because I'd be worried the pdl one would be a misleading reading. The trouble is uh, the med amplified are also often high, high smokers too. Okay. So there is another um, a, um, question here, I think from Spain. So I'm going to take it. <laughs> <laughs> is it in Spanish? <laughs> What is the best te technique to detect MET um, uh, uh, copy gain or amplification? And um, I think we, we, I mean, we just uh, very much mentioned that. And uh, I mean, for particularly, um, uh, so what, what is your take in on that, uh, uh, Ross? Would you go for uh, uh, in tissue? Would you go for fish? Would you go for... Um, uh, uh, NGS technology, what do you prefer? So honestly, it is the last remaining fish test that we still have kept on here. Even though we have a DNA and RNA based NGS panel, we still use MET fish because it's, it's the best way of truly quantifying it relative to the centromere. And, um, you know, in the hands of a skilled um, cytogeneticist, they can also very clearly pick out, you know, what's the tumor as opposed to anything else. Yeah. So it's still nice that uh, the, those data, particularly with uh, uh, um, cell-free DNA, is providing us some relevant information, particularly when you're not having access to uh, left tumor biopsy or particularly you don't have the fish assay around. So I think it's still a good, uh, a good addition to have. There is a question on, uh, uh, for, on the way you actually make recommendations for your patients. Uh, uh, in terms of uh, uh, counseling uh, when you're giving carbamatinib or tiponotinib. Any advice, for example, on managing peripheral edema? So how would you do, both of you? What, what do you recommend to your patients and how you specifically manage edema? Well, so one of the key things is you, you have to tell the patient that they should get into the habit of weighing themselves and tracking an increase in weight because it's not it's not a classic um gravity dependent edema always and sometimes people 
just sort of gradually uh, increase. I mean, you can get facial edema, you can get the back of one hand. Uh, to some extent, it can come and go, but there is a cumulative increase, and it tends to be the later, a later onset side effect, but it is cumulative. You can improve matters with uh, support hose, um, you know, lifting the foot of the bed and diuretics work a little bit, but it can, it can be problematic. It's not, it's a harder edema. It's not just the sort of same squishy fluid accumulation edema, at least in my experience. Yeah, we've sent patients to um, kind of peripheral edema therapy, like we send breast cancer patients, and uh, doing that early on when the edema seems to be a problem can be incredibly helpful. Uh, I, I, must, I must say I had the same experience with a couple of patients that, uh, you know, that uh, had really tough issues with that, and the, the uh, edema clinic helped them quite a lot. So I just uh, got here a very easy question for both of you. What are the differences between tepotinib and cabmatinib? <laughs> Tell us. <laughs> well, um, cabmatinib has a license and tepotinib doesn't unless you're in Japan. <laughs> um, I think, you know, it's, it's hard because when you start to look at efficacy endpoints, my concern is that we're not always comparing like with like, that there's some fundamental heterogeneity in this population. And the only thing that I feel comfortable, so, you know, your PFS could be different, your response rate could be different depending on who exactly is in there. Now this is kind of fuzzy science, but if you say those who respond have kind of identified themselves as the true met addicted, then the only thing you could actually compare between studies at this point is actually the duration of response. That's also hampered by how long have you followed the patient up and how frequently you're looking. But on the basis of that, actually, Tepotinib has the longest duration of response, which is kind of intriguing, but that's a little fuzzy at present. Yeah. And I think one differentiator is that Tepotinib has data with uh, liquid biopsy, which um, uh, that, not that we would expect this to necessarily be different, but um, they were able to accumulate that data and present that data to show that it's similar. I fully agree. That is the, I mean, the more relevant piece of uh, differentiation because, I mean, at the end of the day, particularly to, I mean, uh, there is still a good number of patients that we identify uh, based on liquid biopsy because we don't have enough tissue to do the test uh, uh, at the time we're receiving the patient. So I think that's a very important issue. But I would imagine that's transferable between drugs. I mean, that's... Right. I think most likely. Yeah. So there is a question about uh, would you use a MET inhibitor with uh, uh, PDL1 inhibitor in a case that both tests are positive, MET skip mutation and PDL1? Is that something which has any science behind or? I would feel mm -hmm. uncomfortable with that in the sense they don't necessarily combine terribly well. And also because of a concern that in particularly a never smoker who has high PDL1 in the setting of a driver oncogene, that doesn't mean that's secondary to infiltrating lymphocytes. It could be downstream of the oncogene. And I, I definitely remember a, a patient of mine who was Medex on 14, skip mutant, um, was a never smoker, had PDL1 of 90%. And she said, You have to put me on immunotherapy. And she just completely blew through it. Her cancer just went bananas. All right. And the other issue, we've tried that with crizotinib and uh, liver function tests uh, went through the roof. 
So then the problem becomes that you um, aren't able to continue on the TKI therapy um, and you have to stop the, the targeted therapy because, or lower the dose of the targeted therapy. So at this point, we haven't effectively um, given targeted therapies with uh, IOs or shown the benefit of that. Um, I'm sure the trial will, will occur though. So uh, tell me, what do you do with a patient which is, let's say, first line, uh, is having a met ISON uh, 14 skipping mutation? You, you uh, put the patient into a trial with tepotinib or carbatinib or on a standard of care, and after progression, uh, what would you do with this patient if you're not having any other clinical trial uh, option for that patient? What would be your uh, first option on progression to the initial TKI? So I think looking for um, types of resistance would be helpful um, and potentially thinking about uh, something like cabozantinib. Um, moving forward with uh, one of our many immunotherapy-based uh, options um, now that we have uh, a large number available to us. Um, and then obviously I like the ability to move to a clinical trial and potentially with one of the antibodies. So I'd, I'd be a little different. So I would, I, I totally agree with it. In an ideal world, you re-biopsy, see if you had an on-target resistance mutation um, and, and see if you could, you know, jerry-rig something with a class two inhibitor and I like the idea of clinical trials, but I would probably put them on carboplatin pemetrexid. I, I don't even know that I would even include the immunotherapy. I might want to keep the TKI going with the with the chemotherapy. So in the, actually, honestly, I maybe would treat this patient with chemo IO if the patient is not having any, let's say, specific genomic aberration I have to a, a target, but uh, chemo IO would be likely to be my my choice. I mean, at the present time, I did it, I don't think I don't have any reason not to give uh, standard of care to this patient. Let's say. And Ross, even a patient in their 80s, you would give them uh, TKI and uh, chemo. Yeah, I mean, the TKI is combined fine with chemo a lot. Um, I think I think there are, there are, the issues are, I mean, there's there's some nitty gritty here. So. One, um, you know, we actually don't have any evidence of chemo IO in MedExon 14. And that, they were presumably in the studies, but we don't know how they did. Yeah. Um, and secondly, because of the combinability of IO and TKI, you'd probably have to stop the TKI. And you can think, well, why would you worry about stopping the TKI? Because we tend to see um, acquired resistance happening in a clonal fashion. So some clones are still being suppressed. And also, particularly for catmatinib, maybe it's also protecting the brain. So... We're all kind of data free, but you know that, that those would be my biases. Okay. So, um, what uh, what do you recommend for people in terms of um, uh, uh, testing? That is a very relevant issue that many patients are actually not being tested for many molecular aberrations, particularly for those which are not that frequent. So if you go to, a, let's say, a new center, so how would you try to make sure that all your patients in your center and in your network are actually being tested for uh, exome 14 metal mutation? I think it's similar to um, 
what has been done in breast cancer when you have therapies and you need to get testing, you need to make sure that the centers are doing uh, the appropriate testing. I think the issues we have um, in the United States is that there are many centers, many different pathology labs that are um, getting these tissue. And so um, it's not a simple um, algorithm. When we're in a bigger center, we can control that and make sure that uh, RNA-based NGS testing is being done with appropriate men amplification if that's uh, necessary, but um, it is a little bit more of a logistic um, challenge, but I think we're all trying to address it. And as we have um, affiliate sites associated with, um, with our practices, we are working to try and make sure our lung cancers are tested in a more uniform way. Okay, I got a very final question for Dr. Kamitz. Okay. Um, he's always trying to, 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 to make people thinking about uh, what are the differences between PFS and directional responses? So people is wondering why uh, uh, were you somehow uh, uh, concerned about the difference uh, in that specific case between PFS and directional responses? Could you provide explanation of the difference? Okay, so if you if you look like EGFR mutants and you put them on an EGFR TKI, the PFS and the directional response are almost exactly identical. I.e., if you don't if you have shrinkage, but it doesn't quite manifest as a resist response, you're still deriving the same degree of benefit. When you get a disconnect, so let's take, you know, IO as a great example. You know, your duration response is two years, but your PFS is two months. And that's not because of pseudo progression. That's because most people are actually not benefiting from the drug in an unselected population. So a disconnect between PFS and duration response tells you that you have a group of people who are not deriving the same degree of benefit as the responders. And that's what I, and that plus the response rate running about 50% tells me that um, MedX114 still remains a, a molecularly heterogeneous population. And all of those data sets, we've now got four or five of them showing some people don't even express MET protein. Some have other driver oncogenes again supports that. So we are at the beginning of defining the true MET exon 14 addicted population. So I just really like to thank you all, uh, uh, Ross and, and Karen. Uh, and finally, I really like to thank the audience. Thank you very much, Dr. Paz Ares, Dr. Kamich, and Dr. Reckamp. And thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us. As a reminder, to view the full program, MET inhibition in advanced non-small cell lung cancer, molecular testing for MET exon 14 and emerging options, and to download the slide set associated with this discussion from the Clinical Care Options website, please click on the link in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening.